0: Today we're talking about Jefferson. His part in church history is controversial, but it's a topic that I think we need to cover. We're going to be talking about slavery, Islam, and the Jefferson Bible. Welcome back to Church History. I'm your host, Laura Lee Siemens, and I'm sitting here right now in my freshly painted office. I spent the weekend with my husband painting my office, and next week we're going to be putting in a new floor. I'm going to post some pictures on my Instagram once I'm done, so you can follow me on Instagram to see a little bit more about my life. I'll post a link in the show notes. I want to start off by saying how thankful I am for people who started sponsoring this podcast. I had a gift over Christmas from a man named David, and it was so encouraging. I'm so thankful for listeners who care enough about this podcast to support it. It helps me and encourages me to keep going. Also, I'm on Locals. If you haven't heard about Locals, it's this great social media network where you can support the people that you follow. And I'm really thankful for the supporters that I have on Locals. Thank you so much. Last week, I was given the opportunity to speak at a church. I spoke on the life of William Wilberforce and the hope that we can have today, that God can do a miracle in a world that seems hopeless if we allow God to use us. I was so encouraged by this church and I was so thankful for the privilege of speaking to them. Seeing believers here in Ontario, meeting freely without fear, that was the encouragement that God knew that I needed. While I was speaking at this church, I met a lovely listener named Jessica and her and her brother made me some beautiful artwork. And I want them to know that I have that artwork right here on my desk right now. I love knowing that there are young people listening to this podcast, learning about church history, and being inspired to change the world. Jessica, you have such a tender heart for following God, and I hope you never lose that. Because children like you are the hope we have for the future. Okay, today we're going to be talking about the life of Jefferson, one question about church history that I often get is this. Were the founding fathers of America Christians? Did their belief in God influence the founding of America? Now, the first thing I have to say is that I'm not American. I live in the very cold, currently not free province of Ontario. However, I love America. And I believe you can't study church history without looking at the founding of America. I think it's a pivotal point in church history. One of the founding fathers that is controversial is Thomas Jefferson. There are three things about his life that people question. First, slavery. Second, the fact that he had a Quran and some members of Congress today use that Quran to be sworn into office. And three, The Jefferson Bible. A Bible written by Jefferson that seems to leave out all the miracles. Does this mean he was a deist that didn't believe in miracles? We're going to look at these three questions today. Now, if I was to tell the whole story of Jefferson, his life story would take many episodes. But this is not an American history podcast. This is a church history podcast. So we're just going to do one episode. And I hope, for my American listeners, that you will understand that I can't tell every aspect of his life. Question number one. Slavery. We have talked about slavery in great detail in other episodes, such as the three episodes on the life of William Wilberforce, and the story of the slaves, Venture, James and Bette, and there's another episode called Slavery in New Amsterdam. I would suggest going back to listen to those episodes. To get a good picture of the transatlantic slave trade from the years 1525 all the way until 1866 the transatlantic slave trade shipped 12.5 million slaves while sometimes we get the picture that all or at least most of the slaves were shipped to america that is an inaccurate picture in fact according to the transatlantic trade database about 338,000 slaves out of the 12.5 million went to America. That's actually a very small percentage of the slave trade. Here are some other facts about America and slaves. The state with the most slaves was New York. We talked about the founding of New York in our episodes, The Dutch Golden Age, where we talked about the story of Horace and Catalina. There's also the episode, Adrian Vanderdonk, where we continued the story of New York. Another episode where we talked about New York and slavery is slavery in New Amsterdam. This is where we talked about how the slave trade first came to America. In 1780, Pennsylvania was the first state to abolish slavery. In 1783, Massachusetts also abolished slavery. In 1803, it was just 20 years after Massachusetts abolished slavery that Denmark-Norway abolished slavery. They became the first country to abolish slavery. However, don't forget that two states in America had abolished slavery before Denmark and Norway. While America wasn't the first country to abolish slavery, Pennsylvania and Massachusetts were the first states to abolish slavery. In 1807, just four years after Denmark and Norway abolished slavery, Thomas Jefferson signed the law into place, that made it illegal to import slaves into any port operated by the United States. It was that same year that William Wilberforce helped pass the law ending the slave trade in all the countries owned by England. So both America and England ended the slave trade, but not slavery, in the same year. To truly understand Thomas Jefferson and the slave question, we have to look at the life of a woman named Sally. Sally was born in 1773 in Virginia. She was born a slave. Her mother was Betty. Her father was also her master, John Wales. She was the youngest of six siblings. Although she was the child of a white plantation owner, she was a slave because her mother was a slave. And the law at the time said that if your mother was a slave when you were born, then you were a slave, and it didn't matter who your father was. Before Sally's first birthday, her father died, and she was sent to live with her half-sister, Martha, who had been married for about a year. Martha not only inherited baby Sally, she inherited 135 slaves. She also inherited a massive amount of debt. Martha's husband, Thomas, was an avid reader and writer. He was a lawyer and an inventor. His pride and joy was his homestead. He had built it before any inheritance of slaves and Thomas himself did not own any slaves. He was very political and the world around them was changing quickly. Thomas was a lawyer and a member of the Virginia House. In 1769, just four years before Sally was born, Thomas had tried to pass a law that would allow people to free their slaves but the law had not passed so baby sally is sent to martha and thomas's home and the couple suddenly has 135 slaves and a mountain of debt this is the debt the couple would not pay and would grow over time when sally was two years old a war broke out and it was a war that birthed the united states of america at age two this really doesn't mean anything to sally but it would change her life forever. Martha ran the household as Thomas was away during the time of war. Sally was only three years old when Thomas wrote the Declaration of Independence. In the Declaration, he wrote about King George, and he said, He has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred right of life and liberty in the person of a distant people who never offended captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere, or to incur miserable death in their transportation. And he is now exciting those very people to raise in arms against us and to purchase that liberty of which he had deprived them. By murdering the people upon whom he intrude, and thus paying off former crimes committed against the liberties of one people, with crimes which he urges them to commit against the lives of another. This part that Thomas wrote in the Declaration of Independence was taken out before it was finalized because people thought it was a paragraph that would be viewed as a way to free the American slaves, including the 135 slaves Martha and Thomas now owned. It would have also included a little Sally, when Sally was nine years old, her master and half-sister, Martha, died. Martha had lost three children who had all died as babies. Her daughter, Lucy, was born shortly before Martha died. Martha and Thomas had three remaining children, baby Lucy, Patsy, who was a year older than Sally, and Mary, who was five years younger than Sally. One year later, the War for Independence ended and Thomas would be able to return home. Thomas tried again to pass an anti-slavery law. This time, he tried to pass a law that all of the new area that had been taken at the end of the War of Independence would be slave free. This would make it against the law to own a slave in the areas that are now known as Kentucky, Tennessee, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, Louisiana, and Missouri. The law failed to pass by just one vote. In that same year, Thomas left with his daughter Patsy for France. Thomas also took along Sally's older brother James with him when he went to France. James became Ben Franklin's understudy while Thomas was working. And in school, James began to learn the French cuisine. He became a great chef. When Ben Franklin left France... Thomas took the job as the ambassador to France, and that would change Sally's life forever. Thomas immediately sent for his daughter, Mary, to come and live with him in France. He also asked that an older slave be sent to help take care of her. There was a slave that was supposed to come and help take care of Mary, but she was pregnant and getting sick a lot. So right before the voyage, it was decided that instead a teenage slave named Sally would take her place. While in France, Sally lived with her brother. They were both paid a wage, and they both studied French during their time in France. Sally attended parties with Patsy, who was only one year older than her. Thomas bought her a beautiful dress, and the young girl Sally began to change from a little slave girl into a sophisticated, classy young French lady. During their time in France, Thomas was sent a copy of the Constitution. He refused to sign the Constitution or even endorse it in any way because the Bill of Rights had not been added. His friend, James Madison, didn't see the Bill of Rights as a necessity, but Thomas persuaded him to add in the Bill of Rights. This gives Americans the freedom they have today, such as free speech and the right to bear arms. It did not, however, give freedom to the slaves. That would not be added to the Bill of Rights until 39 years after the death of Thomas. Had the freedom of slaves been added to the Bill of Rights, maybe the Constitution wouldn't have been agreed upon. But if it would have been agreed upon and signed in the Constitution, It would have made for a completely different United States of America. Not putting the freedom and anti-slavery into the Bill of Rights was a mistake that would leave a dark stain on the history of a great nation. It would also lead to the bloodiest war in American history, a war that would take the life of Sally's grandchildren. Sally also had to face a choice of slavery or freedom. And this is a very fascinating part of her story. At age 18, Sally was given a choice. Thomas was asked by President Washington to return to America and serve as the Secretary of State. Thomas accepted the position. Sally and James were both given an option. They could stay in France and live as free people or return to America as slaves. Both Sally and James decided to stay with Thomas, and they both returned to America as slaves. Historians say the reason they decided not to return is that they didn't want to cut ties with their mother or their other siblings. They also had a really good relationship with Thomas, but there seemed to be another reason. The young Sally and a much older Thomas had started a relationship Sally left for France a young girl. She returned to America, a beautiful young lady with long, straight black hair, well-educated, able to speak and read in French, and with the eye of one of the most powerful men in America. At the age of 22, Sally gave birth to her and Thomas's daughter, Harriet. Thomas was at that time the Secretary of State, and around this time, Sally's brother, James, was given his freedom. He would become a very good chef, and he wanted to work as a chef, and it's unclear why James was given his freedom and not Sally. This is the heart of history that's really difficult to understand. Why, once it was legal to free slaves, why did not Sally and the other 135 slaves not be given their freedom? Had Thomas become accustomed to having them, and now he felt he needed them, was it because of the debt? He owed from his father-in-law that had only grown over the years. And now, if he was to free his slaves, would the debtors take them? Or, was the love of politics and power now ruling his priorities, and freeing all his slaves would make it difficult for him to win an election? We don't know the reason. What we do know is that Thomas had two relationships in his life. His wife, Martha, and after her death, Sally. Sally and Thomas could not be married. It was against the law for a white man and a black man to marry. But the relationship was as close to marriage as it could have been in the 17th century, with the added dimension that Thomas was Sally's master. It's a reminder that history is messy. When Harriet was two years old, she passed away. A year later, Sally and Thomas had a son. Thomas entered the battle of politics. And his fight to end slavery took a back seat. As he entered politics, there was a spotlight put on Sally, a spotlight she did not want. As Thomas entered the arena to run for the presidency of the United States, the press began to talk about Sally. They accused Thomas of having a relationship with her. Thomas and Sally had, at this point, two children together. Thomas refused to answer any questions about Sally. Thomas was accused of being in partnership with France because of view of separation of church and state. They painted him as a heretic. They also painted Sally as a prostitute. In fact, the press would print that if Thomas became president, he would burn all your Bibles, your daughters and wives would be turned into prostitutes, and he would force children to sing heretic hymns. Thomas won the presidency, but barely. Now, although history will never see Sally as a first wife, she was the only woman in a relationship with Thomas when he was the third president of the United States. While Thomas is president, Sally gives birth to another daughter and names this daughter Harriet as well. Thomas' presidency is successful. He builds a navy, he wins a war against Libya, he buys land and doubles the size of the United States. And they have children together while he's in office. In fact, all together, Sally and Thomas have six children. The children are all well-educated, they play musical instruments, but they're also slaves. Had America ended slavery with the writing of the Declaration of Independence, had America been open to the idea of a black woman and a white man being married, Sally would have probably been the first black first lady. Imagine how different history would be if that had happened. Two of their children, Harriet and Beverly, both left the home of Thomas. Although they were technically labeled as runaway slaves, they were both given money by the household and put on a stagecoach with tickets to Washington. In Washington, they both lived as white people. Their son, Beverly, lived as a carpenter and a fiddler. Harriet worked as a spinner in a shop before getting married. Both married well, and both became part of Washington society. Sally stayed in a relationship with Thomas until his death, July 4, 1826. In his will, he granted freedom to his children. In a shocking surprise, though, he did not grant freedom to Sally. She was, however, given freedom by Thomas and Martha's daughter, Patsy. Sally lived with her son, Madison, who was a carpenter, and eventually owned his own farm. The other living son Was also a carpenter, and he would become a well known musician. Madison would be the only child of Sally and Thomas who would take Thomas's last name, Madison Jefferson. Sally died at the age of 62 in 1835. Ninety two years after Sally was born, and thirty years after her death, slavery was abolished in America. Her grandchildren would fight in the Union side of the Civil War. one would die as a prisoner of the war. Her great-grandson, Frederick Madison Robert, would become the first black descendant elected to public office on the West Coast. He served the California State Assembly for 20 years. Historians debate the significance of Sally. For years, people would not acknowledge the relationship, and it wasn't until the year 2000 that a DNA test proved the children of Sally were also the children of Thomas Jefferson. The fact that Sally was a slave of Jefferson puts the idea of her relationship into kind of an awkward box. Some claim they could not have been a consenting relationship if he was a master and she was a slave. That definitely is uncomfortable to say the least. I personally go back and forth on how I feel about this story. What we do know is that Sally had only one relationship through her whole life. She was in a monogamous relationship with Thomas Jefferson. Neither Thomas or Sally was in a relationship with anyone else while they were together. We know she was beautiful. We know she was extremely intelligent. We know she raised incredible children. And, in my opinion, I believe she was the third First Lady of America. Do you love learning about church history and love this podcast? This podcast is being turned into a book series, and the first book is now available for sale. You can find the link in the show notes. And now, back to our episode. Question number two about Thomas Jefferson. Pirates and Muslims. One of the things less known about Thomas Jefferson was his war with Muslim pirates. In our second season, I did four episodes on the Crusades, and I'm not going to rehash the Crusades. But if you haven't listened to those episodes... I would recommend going back and listening to them. It was a dark time in church history. While the Muslim countries were attacking and taking land, the Christian nations that went to war ended up attacking other Christian nations. In the end, the Latin and Greek church was divided. The church began to teach what would eventually lead to indulgences, and the Islamic nations never stopped believing they were still in the crusades. The Islamic religion taught them it was their duty to take over the whole world until the whole world was under the rule of Islam. Even today, many Islamic nations still believe we're part of the Crusades. And even today, many Islamic teachings teach it's still their duty to take over the whole world until the whole world is under the rule of Islam. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. I have a few episodes on the life of Columbus as well. One of the reasons that Columbus was looking for a new trade route was that Islam was in the middle of their second great jihad, and it was invading Central Asia, and it had taken Constantinople just 38 years before Columbus sailed the ocean blue. On September eleventh, 1683, at the gates of Vienna, the Islamic force was finally stopped, and they would never forget that date. The church had moved into a whole new world, the Reformation. While Christian nations fought against each other, the Islamic world still believed they were at war with the Crusaders. The West found a new land, created a new country, and completely forgot about their fight with Islam. But pirates had taken over the land routes. They would capture ships, take the passengers as slaves, and steal their supplies. When America gained their independence from England, One of the consequences was that they no longer had the British ships to protect them. The Ottoman provinces, such as Algeria, Tripoli, and Morocco, were all part of a slave trade. While we know a lot about the transatlantic slave trade, we're really never taught about this slave route. One of the reasons is that there's no descendants of these slaves, because each male slave was castrated to make sure they would have no children. The slaves were kept in horrible conditions, chained to the floors, and worked until they died. Imagine being on a trip, a vacation, and then your ship is taken by pirates. You're brought to a country you've never been in before. You're castrated, unsure if you're going to be able to survive. You live in pain, chained to the prison floor. You wonder if your government is going to send someone to come and rescue you. Each day that passes, you lose more hope. Days turn to weeks. Weeks turn to months. Months turn to years. You are offered one way to escape. Convert to Islam. There is an Islamic teaching that says slavery is wrong if the slave is a follower of Islam. So if you convert to Islam, you will be free. This is the life of the Barbary pirate slaves. Many were held captives for decades. Many converted to Islam to escape. In 1784, the Continental Congress agreed to pay money to the Islamic states in order to allow them safe travel. Thomas Jefferson thought that they should refuse this payment, but John Adams and Benjamin Franklin fought against Jefferson, and John Adams and Benjamin Franklin won the argument. This was one of many arguments that Adams and Jefferson had. In 1801, President Thomas Jefferson took office. Since the founding of America, the government had been sending $25,000 to the Islamic rulers of Tripoli in order to be given safe passage without their ships being taken and their passengers stolen as slaves. When Jefferson took office, Tripoli demanded... $225,000 $225,000 instead of the 25000 Jefferson refused to pay. He also wanted his citizens back who had been taken as slaves and were being held in Tripoli. He began to read and study the Quran in order to understand the motivation of the Islamic countries. He had Qur'ans in his personal library because of this. And as a side note, in the last American election, members of the House used that exact Quran to be sworn into office. When Jefferson refused to make the payment, Tripoli declared war on the United States of America. The problem was, America didn't have a Navy, so Jefferson took the country into debt in order to create the first American Navy fleet. June 4, 1805, the United States Marine Corps won the war. Although Americans still paid bribes until 1816, The war ended with the American prisoners in Tripoli finally freed. The ones that had survived, at least. Many had been held captive since before the War of Independence. There were over one million Europeans who had been taken as slaves by the pirates. They had been sold into slave markets in North America and the Ottoman Empire. But as I said, there are no descendants because they were castrated. Now it's important to look at two dates that I mentioned. 1805 is when the Americans won the war against Tripoli and were able to free their slaves. In 1807, just two years later, is when Thomas Jefferson signed the law into place that made it against the law to import slaves into any port operated in the United States. It's important when we look at the transatlantic slave trade and the history of it that we also look at the other slave trades happening at the same time thomas jefferson was part of trying to abolish both are you enjoying this podcast do you want to support this podcast well pour yourself a cup of coffee and imagine waking up each morning with a reminder from our church fathers Check out our Etsy page, where you can find mugs with quotes from great men and women of God. You'll find a link in the show notes. And now, back to our episode. Question number three we have about Thomas Jefferson is the Jefferson Bible. Here is what we're often told about the Jefferson Bible. Jefferson was a deist. He believed God was impersonal. A God who created the world and then just walked away. We are told that Jefferson didn't believe in miracles. So he cut all the miracles out of the Bible and created what's known as the Jefferson Bible. There are many blogs that criticize Jefferson for this Bible. You can find this Bible on display at the Smithsonian National Museum of American History. But what does that Bible mean? The fact this Bible does exist. Does it mean that Jefferson didn't believe in miracles? Or could there be a context when the Jefferson Bible was actually Good Bible. First thing you need to know is that there are two Jefferson Bibles. That's something nobody likes to talk about. In 1804, while Jefferson was in the middle of the Tripoli War, he was also working on a personal project. Jefferson had some friends who were missionaries to the native tribes and they were frustrated because they were struggling with getting the Bibles printed into the many languages of the tribes. And they also found that the people were having a hard time reading the Bible. Jefferson got some advice from a book of sermons from a preacher named Bennett, and the advice was to write a Bible about the teachings of Jesus. Take all four of the Gospels and write them as one book, and leave out the genealogies. Then have that Bible printed en masse to give away. Once someone has read the story of Jesus and is interested in a deeper study, then give them the entire Bible. Jefferson took a Bible and literally cut passages of the Bible and pasted them together. Today we will call this a Synopsis Bible. The missionaries were happy with this Bible, and they used it successfully. None of the miracles were cut out. The whole life of Jesus Christ was in that Bible. Walking on water, raising the dead, feeding thousands with two fish and five loaves, dying, raising from the dead, all of it was in the Bible. It was the four Gospels into one book, only thing taken out was the genealogies. This was only one of the two Jefferson Bibles that Jefferson published for other people to read and use. In 1820, eleven years after Jefferson's presidency had ended, he wrote the second book. However, it was a personal journal and never meant for other people to read. Jefferson believed strongly in limited government. However, he could see that a limited government was only possible if you have moral citizens. Jefferson began to study the teachings of philosophers. But the more he read, the more he came to see that the greatest moral teacher of all was Jesus Christ. He started a journal, and when he was reading the Bible, any time Jesus had a moral teaching, he would write it down. And he wrote it in English, Latin, Greek, and French. Once he had completed this journal, he would start every day by reading it. This was his personal journal, not meant for anyone else to read. After he died on April 4, 1826, the journal was lost for 60 years. His grandson found it and gave it to the government to put on display. It sat in a museum unread for another 20 years. It wasn't until 1902 that a congressman named John Lacey found the journal and read it. John Lacey said this is the greatest moral teaching book that has ever been written. And he wanted every member of Congress to read it. So he had the journal published. Now the printers needed a title for the book. So John Lacey gave it the title, Jefferson's Bible. Two years later, the Bible was printed and given to every member of Congress. They were told, if you follow the moral teachings found in this book, we will have no scandals in government. Until the 1960s, the Jefferson Bible was given to every new member of Congress. Because of this, most people don't know that it's actually a journal, and they don't understand it was a personal journal and never meant to be an actual Bible. It wasn't until almost 90 years after the journal was written that it was actually given the name Jefferson Bible. I don't know if Thomas Jefferson was a Christian. There are many things Jefferson believed that I would definitely disagree with. In fact, he said about the book of Revelations that it's the ravings of a maniac no more worthy or capable of explanation than his own nightly nightmares. Clearly, that's something I don't agree with. But in 1816, Thomas Jefferson wrote this I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus. Thomas Jefferson also believed that only true Christians were allowed to enter the kingdom of God. He believed if you said you were a Christian, but you didn't follow the teachings of Jesus, then you probably were not a real Christian. Was Thomas Jefferson a Christian? Well, only God knows that. But I think it's pretty clear that the Bible and the church did have an influence on his life. In our next episode, we're going to be talking about the life of a man who influenced the church and the world in a very negative way. In our next episode, we're talking about Darwin. To find more podcasts, blogs, and videos, check out my website at lauralee.semans.com.